Thank you, Dusty, and welcome again to our worship service. We're grateful for your presence. We're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 4 tonight, verses 7 down through verse 11, and also verse 14 and 19. Before we do that, as always, we want to welcome all of our visitors. We are very glad that, very glad that you're here tonight. We appreciate so much those that come our way from week to week and those that have placed membership with us. We're grateful for that. It might be the case that you're looking for a church home and we want, we want you to know that we consider you an honored guest and we would love to have you come and join hands with us as we try to, as we try to share the love of God in this community. The songs that we have been singing tonight have accentuated the love of God and tonight we're going to be talking about the divine love of Almighty God and how we as His people ought to respond to that love. There are a lot of great characteristics that we read about in Scripture relating to God and as we think about His character, His nature. And yet one of the great attributes of God is His love for us. And over and over again the Bible talks about the love of God. So we're going to be talking about that in our study tonight. I want to begin by, first of all, noting with you a declaration of love. The Bible emphatically declares the love of God. The Bible says that God so loved us. That's what John said in verse 11 of chapter 4. What about the love of God? I said a moment ago that Many attributes are used in Scripture to describe God. And yet John states in a very succinct way, God is love. God is a being of love. And over and over again in the Old and New Testament, we read about the love of a gracious God in heaven. Let me just share with you some of the things that relate to the love of God for us. First of all, I want to submit to you that God's love is universal. God loves everyone. As a matter of fact, there is no one on planet earth that God does not love. The Bible says in John chapter 3 verse 16, for God so loved the world, that is inclusive in scope of every person. The song that many of us learned as a child Red, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. God loves us. Jesus loves us. When I think about the love of God and the fact that God loves us universally, I'm reminded of the fact that it doesn't matter what a person's race might be, what his or her educational background might be, doesn't matter about your social status, doesn't matter where you're from, the Bible says God loves you. God loves everyone. There's a second thing I want to share with you. Not only is God's love universal, but the Bible says God's, God's love for us is unselfish. Listen to what John said in verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In verse 10, John would say, In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now drop down and look at verse 14. 
John would say, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now just step back and think for a moment. God loved you enough to send his only begotten Son into the world so that you might live through him or by him. Talk about an unselfish, gracious, and merciful God. That's the God we're talking about. God loves the human family, universally speaking. But God was unselfish in his love toward us. God was willing to part with his most prized possession, his only begotten son. In John 3, 16, when Jesus said in the presence of Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The word begotten means only one of its kind. Jesus is unique in the sense that he is deity, the second member of the Godhead. He is the word that has always existed. And yet Jesus willingly came to earth to die for us. And God willingly spared him for us. Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, If God spared not his own son, shall he not much more give us all things freely? God did not spare any expense in redeeming us from sin. There's a third thing that I want to share with you. And that is, not only is the love of God universal and unselfish, but it is unconditional. God has always loved you, and he will always love you. Not long ago, I had a conversation with a lady, and she told me that at one time, she did not know that God loved her while living in a state of rebellion, in a state of disobedience. Listen, God has always loved you. He will always love you. In Romans chapter 5 at verse 6, Paul said, when we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. When did God love you? When you were ungodly. In verse 8 he said, but God commendeth his own love toward us. Listen to him. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When did God love you? When you were a sinner. Now think about that for a minute. God loved you while you were living in sin, while, while you were living in disobedience to his will. There are people in our world today that will live in absolute rebellion to God. They want nothing to do with him. They want nothing to do with his word, his ways, his will. But God still loves them. Now I would grant God does not love their lifestyle. He doesn't condone their ungodly behavior, but he still loves them. What about somebody that has been baptized into Christ? Well, let's just say here's somebody that has been baptized into Christ. They're living a faithful life, and then down the road, they become unfaithful to the cause. Does that mean God doesn't love them any longer because they're a wayward child? Not at all. A person can go out into the world and live as a prodigal, as Jesus narrated in Luke 15. But God still loves that person. You can't escape 
the unconditional love of Almighty God. He will always love you. I think about a parent and a child. And the Bible talks about how God is our heavenly Father. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, John would say, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God, the sons of God. As a parent, would it be possible for you to stop loving your child? Now, I understand that there are some people in our world today that don't act as they should as parents. And the Bible talks about those who lack natural affection. They fail to have that genuine love, that self-serving, sacrificial love as a parent. There are people like that. But most of us, because of the great love we have for our children, no matter what they do, no matter what they say, no, no matter how far they may go, we still love them. We'll always love them because they are bone of our bones and flesh of our flesh. God loves us unconditionally. He doesn't love our sin, but he loves us. And that's something that we ought to be grateful for. There is a fourth thing that I want to say about the love of God. And that is, it is unending. Jeremiah said in chapter 31, verse 3, on behalf of God, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Think about that. God has always loved you. And he will always love you. There are people in our world today that have been spurned by a mate. They have had, they have had a husband or a wife. Look them in the face and say, I no longer love you. I don't feel about you like I once did. Well, that may be true with people on planet earth, but that's not true of God in heaven. God loves you. And the Bible wants you to know that his love for you will be unending. Seasons come and seasons go. Time rolls on, but God's love for you individually, personally, will always be intact. And so, God is a being of love. Listen again to what John said in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for God is love. Look at verse 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. We serve a gracious God in heaven. A God who loves us. In the book of Ephesians in chapter 2 at verse 4, Paul said, but God who is rich in mercy for the great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace are you saved. Did you note what Paul said? When you were dead in sin, God loved you. And his love for you was great. There's a second thing I want you to see in our study tonight. We talk about a declaration of love, but what about a manifestation of love? How did God show his love for us as members of the human family? Well, listen to what he says in verse 9. The love of God was manifested toward us. God has openly declared his love for us. He has said in no uncertain terms, I love you. 
You're a part of my creation. I have made you in my image, in my likeness. God backed that up, didn't he? He backed it up with action. Talk may be cheap, but let me tell you what. God not only verbally declared his love for us, but he has visibly shown his love toward us. How did he do that? Because he gave his son for us. So I want you to see something. If you look at 1 John chapter 4, there's an interesting phrase that is used several times in our context. The Bible says God has sent his only begotten son, verse 9. In verse 10, he said God sent his son. And then look at verse 14. The father has sent the son. What's he saying? He's saying God has demonstrated his love for you. How did he do that on Calvary? He did that when he sent Jesus to die for our sins. Now there are some things that maybe we ought to think about in connection to the manifestation of the love of Almighty God. Number one, Jesus came to rescue us from sin. When it's all said and done, the bottom line is the human family is in sin. Mankind transgressed the law of God in the Garden of Eden. As a result of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, God began unveiling his redemptive plan. Now this plan was in place before the foundation of the world. John talks about the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world in Revelation chapter 13 at verse 8. So God had a plan in place so that when mankind, the crown of his creation, sinned, he could implement this plan and began he began unveiling or unfolding that plan. So, man transgressed the law of God. Because of transgression in the garden, death entered the world. We died, the human family died, both physically and spiritually. At least Adam and Eve did in the garden. Paul said, by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin... And death came upon all men, for that all have sinned. So the consequence of sin in the garden, one of the consequences, physical death. But the second consequence, spiritual death, separation from God. And so as a result of man's sin in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 sets forth the promised seed, the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. And Jesus would come to what? To rescue us from sin and unrighteousness. Let me just give you a couple of passages of scripture along those lines. Do you remember when, do you remember when an angel of God appeared to Joseph in a dream? And the Bible says in Matthew chapter 1 that that angel told Joseph that that which had been conceived in Mary was of the Holy Spirit. And he said in verse 21, She shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he that shall save his people from their sins. Listen, Jesus came to rescue you from sin. Had you been the only person to have ever graced this earth, Jesus would have come for you. He came to rescue you. 
from the bondage and the scourge of sin. Now I understand that we live in a world today when people oftentimes downplay, they minimize the effects of sin. And there are a lot of people in our world today that have the idea that this concept of sin has been drummed up by Bible-believing people. Well, the Bible is right. And what the Bible says is there is none righteous, no, not one. As a matter of fact, if you look at Romans chapter 1, Paul's conclusion, the Gentile world, they're under sin. In chapter 2, his conclusion, the Jewish world, they're under sin. And so in verse 23 of chapter 3, he would say, all have sinned. That's both Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So Jesus came to rescue both Jew and Gentile from the scourge of sin. But then also, not only did Jesus come to rescue us from sin, but he came to ransom us from sin. In Matthew chapter 20 at verse 28, Jesus said, The Son of Man has come not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for the many. The human family was abducted by the devil, in a sense. Because you see, the devil deceived Mother Eve. Adam transgressed the law of God. He too sinned. And so sin became a blight, a scourge on the human family. So Jesus came to ransom us. He was the ransom price, if you please, for sin. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul talks about how there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Did you know that Jesus Christ was willing to give himself for our sins? And we talk about the love of God and God demonstrating his love for us. Let me tell you what, God demonstrated his love for us and Jesus has demonstrated his love for us. There's a third thing. Jesus has redeemed us from sin. The Bible talks about the redemptive work of Jesus. Peter said, you have been redeemed not with corruptible things, silver and gold, but rather, he said, you've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. God sent his son to die for us. And the Bible talks about the precious blood of Jesus. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, at verse 7, that Christ is our Passover lamb. And he said he was sacrificed for us. The blood of that bought us out of the bondage of sin was divine blood. It wasn't just any blood. It was God's blood. Did you know that the, the very fact that we are members of the church suggests that God thought enough of us to establish an institution that has been bought and paid for with the blood of Jesus? Paul said in Acts chapter 20 at verse 28, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I think about the words of Paul in Ephesians 5.25, when he said Christ loved us, loved the church, and gave himself for it. Jesus redeemed us. 
In Ephesians 1, 7, Paul would say that it's in Christ that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. You can't be saved separate and apart from the blood of Christ. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission, Hebrews chapter 9. So when we come in contact with the shed blood of Jesus, we enjoy the benefits of redemption, forgiveness. It's in that context that we are said to be translated out of, delivered out of the world and translated into the kingdom of God's dear son. And Paul would say it's in that sphere that we enjoy redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. There's a fourth thing that I believe we ought to see in this, in this particular point. And that is Jesus has reconciled us because of sin. You ever seen two people that have problems? And for whatever reason, they, they just can't come together and work things out. There's an estrangement. And so sometimes an individual will step forward and try to serve as a mediator, a go-between, and bring the two parties together. Jesus Christ is the mediator that has brought us together. That is, he brought God and the human family together. Now, look again at verse 9. John said, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation is connected in the Old Testament to the mercy seat. And the term carries with it the idea of rendering favorable, to appease, to avert divine wrath. And the idea is that, it's, that it is in Jesus Christ that man and God meet together. You see, Jesus Christ is the one that has brought us together. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, all things are of God who has reconciled all things to himself by Jesus Christ. He said that Jesus, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And so in verse 20, he would say, be reconciled to God. Did you know that reconciliation to God takes place in the one body, the church? And the idea is that those who are reconciled to God are a part of that divine body. Somebody says, well, how do you know that? Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, at verse 16, the Bible says that God, that is Christ, has reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body unto God through the cross. Well, what's the one body? Well, Paul said in Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body of the church. So when we are baptized into Jesus Christ, immersed in that watery grave of baptism, we are delivered out of the power of darkness, translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. We enjoy reconciliation. We are people of reconciliation. We've been reconciled back to God the Father. There are a lot of folks in our world today that minimize the importance of Jesus. We live in a pluralistic society. And there are folks today that will tell you, you don't have to be a follower of Jesus to go to heaven. Well, that's awfully strange. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Luke said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name of the heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If we're going to be saved, the Bible says we have to be saved by Jesus. He is the one that has made it possible for us to be reconciled to God. So what is it we do? We preach reconciliation. What we want to do is tell people, look, you're estranged from God. Why? Because of sin. We've all been there. Paul said this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am now chief. Paul was the chief of sinners and yet he recognized God loved him, that God sent his son to die for his sins. And so what a great message to share. There's a third thing that I want you to see in our study tonight and it has to do with reciprocating this love that we're talking about. Listen to what John said in verse 19. We love him. Why do we love him? Well, John said we love him because he first loved us. What's the love of God mean to you? When you think about what, when, when you think about what God has done for you as an individual, what he's done for the human family, what, what kind of response does that generate in your heart? There are some things that God's love ought to prompt us to do. Let me just cite some of those things that I believe ought to, ought to emerge out of our love for God based on what he's done for us. Number one, we ought to love the Savior. In 1 John chapter 3, at verse 18, John said, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. Do you know the greatest expression that we've ever witnessed in our world regarding love was Jesus. The fact that God sent his son to die for us. So in light of that, doesn't it only stand to reason that we ought to love the Lord? John said we love him because he first loved us. We love God the Father. And yes, we love the Savior. Jesus said, if you love me, there have been a lot of people down through time that have loved the Lord. And their love, for, their love for the Lord has not been mere verbiage, but they have demonstrated that love. And that makes me think about a second thing that we ought to see in this particular point. Yes, we love the Savior, but we also ought to love the Scriptures. Because you see, Jesus had a lot to say about Scripture. And Jesus said in the long ago, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Sometimes people have the idea that they can somehow divest themselves Somehow they can divest themselves from honoring God's word and yet show love for God, show love for the Lord. Jesus said, look, you want to show love for me? Here's how you do it. You do what I say. As children, we show our love for our parents by doing what they say, by obeying them, by honoring them. Well, we honor 
Almighty God and Jesus Christ by doing their will. Jesus said on one occasion, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Do you remember Jesus in Luke 6, verse 46? He asked the question on one occasion, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? I said a moment ago, talk is cheap. You want to show your love for the Lord, then do what he says. It's part of being a disciple of Christ. We are a learner, a follower of Jesus. Let me just very quickly say this. The more time you spend in this book, the more time you read and study and just contemplate what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had to say about Jesus, and then you read the epistles, the book of Acts. First of all, you read about the life of Jesus, his ministry, what he did for you, and then you read about others that love the Lord. And you read about divine instructions to help keep us straight in a crooked world. We ought to love, we ought to love this book. The psalmist said, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day in Psalm 119.97. I would imagine that many of us have a lot of books on our bookshelves at home. I've got a lot of books, but this is the book of all books. This is the only book that's going to tell me how to get safely home. This is it. There's no other book coming. There's no other book that can do what this book can do for you. That's why we ought to read it, meditate upon it, study it daily, treasure it. There's a third thing. We ought to love the saints. Here's what John said, beloved, let us love one another for love is, of, love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Then in verse 11, he said, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The Hebrew writer said that we ought to love the brotherhood. Peter would say that we ought to love one another fervently with a pure heart. The world today is filled with hatred and racism and prejudices. God forbid that it be in his church. When people see the church, they ought to see people that genuinely love one another. You want to talk about attracting the world to the body of Christ? It's done when they see us loving one another. Here's what Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. And then fourthly, we ought to love sinners. Jesus loved sinners, didn't he? The Bible tells us that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I want you to hear me very carefully. I wish we could fill this building up with sinners. I wish we could take every person in this community that's outside the body of Christ, I don't care what their problem, I don't care what their addiction I don't care how far down they are in the muck and the mire of sin. I wish we could get them in this building. You know why? Because we can take a sinner and make a saint out of them. You know how we do that? Through the gospel. That's how we do it. Think about that for a minute. 
If Jesus Christ, let's just imagine that Jesus were the local preacher here. Do you think he'd be out talking to people? You think he'd be trying to fill this building up? You better believe he would. Who would he be after? Let me tell you who he'd be after. He'd be after people like that woman at the well in John chapter 4. You remember her? When he said, go call your husband, she said, I don't have a husband. He said, you've said that right. You've had five husbands. And the man, the man you now have, he's not your husband. Well, what, about, what about Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Looked down upon. Or Matthew, also a tax collector. What if I told you that I know a man right now that was a murderer that had done a lot of despicable things to those who were members of the church, had an ax to grind with the church of our Lord, did everything he could to destroy the church, would you say he was a good candidate for Christianity? You know what I'm talking about? Saul of Tarsus. We ought to love sinners. You know why? Because we were once sinners, alienated from God, estranged. We were without hope and without God in this world. But what made the difference based on what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you that once were far off are made near, brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the difference. So if we fill this building up with people that are living in sin, our goal, our objective, convert them. Take somebody that's in the world, make them, make them right in the eyes of God. When Paul went into the city of Corinth, he went into a city that was filled with sinful people talking about people that were living in open fornication, adultery, homosexuality. There were drunkards there. There were thieves there. There were extortioners in that city. Do you think that frightened the Apostle Paul? Not one bit. He spent 18 months there. Did a great job because the Bible says, and you were washed. Paul presented the gospel to those people. Why do you think he did that? Because he recognized that Christ had loved him and gave himself for him, Galatians 2.20. When we understand the love that God has for us, then we'll love those who are living in sin. I want to close tonight by asking this question. Are you a Christian? There are a lot of questions that come our way on a daily basis, but none more important than are you a Christian. Here's what it means to be a Christian. It means that you're a disciple. And Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Are you willing to begin that journey tonight? If so, here's what you need to do. Put your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, John 8, 24. Confess his name before others. You need to repent of your sins and be immersed in a watery grave of baptism just like they did on Pentecost Day in Acts chapter 2. If you'll do that, God will add you to the church. and You'll be a child of God.
And if you'll live faithfully until death, the promise is the crown of life, Revelation 2, verse 10. If you're unfaithful to his cause, could I encourage you to come home to remember, remember what it was like to be faithful. Remember where you were when you were in Christ. You enjoyed the blessings of forgiveness. You've long since left, left those blessings, but you can come home. You can come home tonight. And the Bible tells us if we will confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would you come tonight as we stand and sing? Mm-hmm.